Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Welcome to another edition of Word in Your Ear. Now, Peter Jackson's Get Back uh, series poured petrol on the worldwide obsession with the Beatles. And I'm talking now to someone who's been stoking that particular fire for years because he's written about like, other 11 or 12 books about the Beatles. And we've, we've talked on previous pods about two of them, The Last Days of John Lennon and his fantastic biographies of George Martin. But uh, he's just revised and updated one of these books, Long and Winding Roads, Principally because the, the, the beleaguered world needs as much uh, about the Beatles as it can get at the moment. It's very good to see him again. <laughs> Ken, how are you? Ken Womack. I, I'm doing very well. And it's so great to see you again, even virtually. And, and I think I agree with you. The world needs more Beatles now than ever. Don't you think it does? Because there's something very comforting about the Beatles story. It's so colourful and it's so optimistic. And it's so so eternally young, isn't it? They, you know, it ended when they were none of them were out of their twenties, and it just seems so kind of so positive. Am I right? It does. And the and and the world is uh, frankly cruel and mean. Uh, too often, and the Beatles remind us that there is another way. There is another way, precisely. Um, now, you were born, I think, uh, around the middle of the Beatles period. I think you were about three or four when they split up. So, how did you, how did you discover them? Can you remember how you discovered them and and how you pieced together their story? Well, I wish I could say it was early language acquisition, but it was nothing <laughs> of the sort. Um, I was, uh, it was in the 1970s and I, yeah. was my breakfast, uh, watching television before going off to school and my favorite show yeah. was, was canceled. It was gone. And they had those, um, you know, pretty lame Beatles cartoons on, yeah. uh, they, they, I'd never seen them before. And they showed, uh, whatever the first episode was in the series. Uh, and there they were. And I wasn't impressed by the cartoons because, of course, the animation really looked old by the 1970s. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the music, of course, is the music. And um, I immediately had the same reaction, I think, that our students have right now, which is, where has this music been all my life? Can you remember what order you discovered things? Can you remember which songs you... Because, I mean, I'm old enough to have been... 
you know, alive and uh, and listening to them when the Beatles story was still developing. So I saw it all in chronological order. But for you, can you remember what uh, what sort of things you you got hold of first? I I think I, I I basically can. Of course, they were always there. You know, I I lived in the world, so um, you know there was a familiarity once I began to delve into the the Beatles music with everything because yeah. it had always been. Uh, in the ether, uh, as it as it is was then, and it is now. So there was a, an instant familiarity. But the first couple of songs I heard uh, via the cartoons, I believe, were "I Want to Hold Your Hand" and "Help." And um, uh, my my father, being fantastic and being sitting right over here in his <laughs> wonderful uh, home, um, uh, went to the the Houston Public Library and and got all of the Beatles books for me. There weren't very many then. I think there were like God. Six. What would there have been? There was, there was oh, they uh, would have been. Uh, remember Walter Taylor's Brozick, the, yeah, Walter, his books and uh, the Twilight of the Gods. Oh, okay. If you remember that one, and I, I suppose the Hunter Davis uh, biography. The Hunter Davis certainly, which was which certainly. came out. I think while they were still going, with it. that's right. Yeah, that's right. Sixty-eight, and anyway, so. Um, he, he picked up the books because if you're going to get into something, you need to study it. Right. Yeah. He said, right. Um, and then, uh, secondly, he, he went and bought a Beatles album for me and it was the Beatles greatest. Um, and this is, uh, it was Odeon, uh, the German title, or I guess. I'd say we didn't have that over here. <laughs> it would have been the West German title. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, at that time. And it was just, uh, uh, an, an international compilation. Um, that was not certainly not part of the official canon. So why did they strike you at that, at that early age as being so special? Because, you know, you then embarked on a, a, a vast amount of your life, for, in fact, devoted to writing about it. What, what was it that made you think they were so I wonder, I, I think about that. Um, well, first of all, I, I think I have the experience that the students I have right now in my Beatles class have, and that is when you make that discovery, it's you're going through the looking glass, right? Yeah. You, life is different. It will never yeah. be the same again, um, you know, at a certain level. And I've seen kids do it as young as five. Um, yeah. I've seen folks as old as 70, you know, make these discoveries and it's, it's, it's uncannily similar. And yeah, yeah. every time it happens, but um, I think in my case, you know, we're getting on, it's 1977 or so. Um, I love the music of the 1970s. In fact, on, on some, I probably like, the 70s better than the 60s. Yeah. But, you know, that's a particularly plasticine period. You've got disco duck and uh, all these things. You've got the Bee Gees, <laughs> of course, and, and other bands. Uh, there's a lot of sort of um, uh, fluff in the air. Yeah. They're kind of a, that, that those groovy night, late 70s love songs. And the Beatles very instantly seemed more substantial. I yeah. Believe, you know. Now, my my 11 year old ears did not think in these ways, but I, I imagine it was something like that because I just discovered top 40 radio. And so I was listening to a lot of the, the yeah. current music. And, you know, once you you listen to I Am The Walrus, um, there's not much else being produced in 1977 that compares. No, absolutely. So when you started writing, I mean, obviously in 2007, when you wrote this particular book, there were a lot of books already about the Beatles. What was it you were trying to do that was different? I mean, a lot of them tend to be either the story or the music. And there's clearly an element that both the story and the music are equally represented in yours. But what was it? What was the kind of point of difference that you were aiming for? 
I was aiming for the story and the music. Um, so, you know, as you know, I'm, I'm, I'm both an English professor and a professor of popular music. Yeah. Uh, as far as my, my tenured position goes. And yeah. um, so I bring both of those elements to the story and, and I believe they're important. And I, when I wrote the book you're, you're holding there, um, I, I was thinking of those great old uh, literary biographies of Joyce and Wolfe and, um, you know, Dickens, those, yeah. those, those huge tomes where they'll tell you the story of the life. But when, you know, when they get to the old curiosity shop, <laughs> they stop and provide you with a contextual. Yes, a summary of the plot and the characters. That's right. Sure. And they demonstrate the artistic growth. And um, I do believe the, the Beatles great future centuries from now will be about will purely be about the art and less and less all of the time about anything that may seem remotely scandalous or sensational. It will really yeah. just really be about the art because that is what stands the test of time. So I wanted to write a book that explored that evolving artistry. And as you know, there is nothing else like the Beatles in painting and uh, in music, uh, certainly be, besides themselves, they're unparalleled in literature. Nobody yeah. else starts it. Love me do fairly primitively and ends with, you know, Abbey road. Um, that is, and, and does it in just seven months, seven years and change, you know, that's, that's remarkable. And it's that trajectory that I'm endlessly interested in trying to understand it. I had a student. Uh, we just did Magical Mystery Tour uh, last uh, two nights ago in my Beatles class uh, in New Jersey. And uh, this kid just really wonderfully summed it up as we finished Magical Mystery Tour. And we talked about <laughs> the very poor showing right on Boxing Day, et cetera. And he said, you know what? It is the Beatles are different in so many ways. But one of them is how they come out on the other side of psychedelia. He said, they come out as better musicians, where he said so many other acts, and he began to reel off several other uh, artists from that period, tend to become mired in the form. And, and he's right, right? I mean, they come out and it's Lady Madonna and Across the Universe and Hey Bulldog. And That's a good point. And, yeah, it was just really wonderful. And of course, this guy's 18. <laughs> that's That's really good. Got Magical Mystery Tour. I can remember watching on Boxing Day on the telly. And of course, part of the disappointment was because we had black and white television. A lot of people had black and white television. So uh, you kind of missed out on the, on, on the magic of it. But I was going to ask uh, just about, I mean, apart from really obvious um, pivotal moments when they met Brian Epstein and when they met uh, George Martin or whatever, and a big hit, were there any major, major pivotal moments, do you think, in the Beatles story? Or, 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 I mean, there were many, but are there, are there any particular ones that uh, that struck you as being absolutely yeah, crucial? Our friend Mark Lewison has been celebrating one all week on Twitter, which I think is really fantastic. Um, and I remember discussing this with him years ago when he was making these discoveries. And that is uh, when they decide to make an album. You yeah. know, that was a brash move to make a record, to make a, yeah. a long playing record. And um you know, simply on the strength of Love Me Do. And of course, by this point, he'd heard uh, Please Please Me. But, um, you know, just that decision to embark on this uh, this very self-conscious phase with him and with Brian and meeting without instruments uh, to discuss and plot the trajectory of the band. That's right. We were talking about that one particular day when George Martin it, saw the potential of the group, didn't he? Yeah, and it's just fantastic because... Uh, 
you know, it's moments of recognition like that that need to happen yeah. for great art to ensue. And um, it's it. I, I I I celebrate Mark for thinking of that and 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 pushing that so diligently just this last week because it, it's true, right? I mean that it, it began a new uh, phase, very important yeah. early. Uh, but, you know, I mean, we could go on about all the important moments. Uh, my gosh, two months later from that, right, with Big Mal getting in the, the van. Um, Absolutely. In, in the middle of the big freeze, the worst snowstorm and blizzard in history, where the where the channel's frozen over and they go yeah. down to London because they have to consolidate the success yeah. of Please Please Me. And, you know, they were willing to do anything. <laughs> They're lucky they didn't die yeah. in that some terrible ditch in the in the north that weekend well it was your book that that uh, where i first learned of one of the extraordinary facts i think about the beatles again one of those extraordinary coincidences that that george martin had turned down the beatles and the uh, managing director uh, lg wood of emi had kind of fallen out and had a disagreement, hadn't he, with George Martin? Because George Martin was having an affair with his secretary, of which the chairman disapproved enormously, voting director. And he therefore ordered him, pretty much, didn't he, to sign the Beatles. Am I right? He did. And, and you know... Which uh, is an I, extraordinary thing, isn't it? Because if that hadn't happened, you know, then, then maybe it would have been completely different, as it would have been so many examples of that. Absolutely. And it, it's, um, you know, it, it's a transformative moment because, you know, George was... Uh, kind of at loggerheads anyway with EMI. Yeah. He wanted more money. He wanted to be credited and to earn yeah. dollar pounds uh, for royalties and residuals and those sorts of things. And Wood wasn't having it. Um, you know, when you look at that, uh, there's also a sense that that they all knew that Brian was the biggest record retailer in the North, that they needed to keep him happy. And, you know, it was almost a company-wide recognition that why didn't we sign this? Yeah. This, this costs us nothing, you know, as, as Mr. Lewison discovered, those penny per record contracts were that bad. You know, they, there was no value uh, to them, to the artist, unless you became, well, the Beatles, because otherwise it was so slanted in uh, the EMI group's favor that, you know, you would never really see any money out of it. So, the the risk uh, was so low that I mean it was kind of a it was kind of a sad moment that they didn't just hand out that contract like candy the first time Brian came around because yeah. you know he's the biggest record retailer you got to keep him happy look at what they've done over the years right yeah to keep, exactly to keep record retailers happy <laughs> you yeah. know sending them off on cruises and great vacations and these what's the difference between handing out a, a record a, a contract contract absolutely. To, you know, so, you know, when you look at it in that way, it was such a, um, uh, an, it was a no brainer, right? As folks would yeah. say. And, uh, and George, of course, could just shrug and say, well, it's your money. I mean, <laughs> yeah. The studio, as your colleague uh, just wrote about, was paid for. So, <laughs> um, you know, the sunk costs were already there. There was no reason not to. It, it, it took that kind of silly turn of yeah. events. But I can never get over how many. In retrospect, it's just kind of <laughs> it's kind of dense that they didn't just yes. do it. I could never get over just how many 
things needed to happen in the audience in the sequence in which they happened for the whole story to have evolved the way it did. But anyway, getting back to the revise, so you've revised and updated long and winding roads. I mean, that was 15 years ago. So so you've added presumably perspectives and information that you've learned since. So give me some examples of the sort of things that you've you've come across that have maybe you've added to the book or have changed your view of the story. Well, frankly, um, one of the things I did was streamline it in in a certain sense. I removed a lot of the literary theory. Yeah. Um, I apologize to English professors everywhere, but I gutted it. <laughs> it's uh, right. Um, I really felt that it wasn't it wasn't contributing to uh, the story in the same way that it, I felt like it was, you know, a couple decades ago. So um, now it 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 just feels stronger to lean even more so into the, as I talked about a moment ago, that literary biography approach. So I, I really doubled down on that in a lot of ways, but certainly spoke a lot more about uh, the debt that we know the Beatles owed to African-American rhythm and blues, uh, certainly to understanding the, as you just uh, identified, the George Martin's role in becoming yeah. part of their team. And, you know, one of the things I love talking to the students about is the way in which with Brian and the Beatles and George, they really went sideways and pushed over an entire industry. It's really quite remarkable. You know, um, so much training in the world of business is about working and, you know, making sure that you're working inside of policy and protocol and, and you yeah. know, paying your dues. They came in and, and had to, as you know, shove it over because it wasn't going to listen to them otherwise. Do you feel, as Martin Lewis obviously does, that that uh, you're constantly worried about having published a book about the Beatles, that new information will come along which you wish you'd excluded? He's obviously haunted by this. Does that bother you as much? That there's going to be whole revelations that you, you couldn't acknowledge? Right. So uh, not long after that book came out, well, it was a little bit after that, but he said to me, uh, Mark did, that you know, he said, you're going to immediately notice a percentage of this is not correct and you can't do anything about it Yeah, because, you know, you continue to glean more and more information. So one benefit that this book has is I just carried out an enormous amount of research on Mal Evans. So, um, you know, I, I probably uh, carried out about two or 300 hours worth of interviews. And um, and in fact, you're, you're writing a book about Mal now, aren't you, I think? Yes, yes. That's right. Uh, Look, tell us about that. He's such an interesting character. My goodness. He I is mean, an, you know, uh, the complications of the life in Liverpool when he has the affair with Pete Best's mum at the time that, you know. Well, Pete that's Best Neil. <laughs> You're thinking about that was Neil. What am I talking about? That was Neil. Yeah. No. <laughs> but weirdly, Mal is more complicated than Neil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mal is uh, Mal's. He was the odd man out. You know, he was 35. Yeah. He had a job. Um, well, no, he's not 35 at that point, but um, yeah. he was born in 1935. So he's five, five plus years older than they are. He had a yeah. real job. He had that rare thing in Liverpool. He owned a house. He had a car. Yeah. He had a pension. And it's a triple threat. Right. Um, and uh, he, he's been meeting these guys for a year or so in the cavern. And he decides to throw in his lot with them, you know, and he's not the only one. Right. Who takes this incredible risk. His is just riskier. Yeah. You know, Neil did the same thing when he when he when he ran into him. Stu Sutcliffe, remember what he told his sister? You know, gosh, I don't know where these guys are going to go, but I want to I want to be with them for a while and see what's yeah, going to happen. Yeah. I was talking to to Klaus Vormann recently, and he said the same thing. He just wanted to find out what was going to happen. It felt it felt different 
but they all realized that it could have go for naught. But uh, in any way, in any event, you know, Mal throws over his whole life and becomes their most intimate companion. You know, he's with them for everything. And yeah. after the disbandment, he's still working extremely closely with uh, George, uh, John and, and Ringo. And Paul well, it's so touching that, uh, and we should talk about it in some detail in a minute, actually, about, about Get Back. But it's so touching in that just how devoted he is to them and how he's just, you know, in every respect with the lyrics and getting the anvil for Maxwell Silverhammer and just, he's constantly there just providing. And uh, I remember McCartney talking once about how occasionally he'd have time off and he once went on a, on a bus trip around London, I think, with Mel, just the two of them, going around the top of a double-decker bus, you know. Amazing. And then he had that very sad end to his life, didn't he? I think it was some, something to do with him, possession of firearms, or the police thought he had a gun or something. I don't know. Well, and he story. did have a gun. And yeah. uh, so I, I, you know, for my work, I, I interviewed folks who were on the scene. I've got yeah. police reports and everything. So uh, very shortly, maybe even exclusive on Word on Your Ear, we'll, uh, we'll blow the lid off of everything because... You know, when you go to something like Mal's Wikipedia page, you discover yeah. that almost everything is wrong, um, except his birth date is correct. Right. <laughs> what kind of thing? What major things have they got wrong? Um, uh, the circumstances of his life, of his death. It's just yeah. uh, remarkable. It's, you know, we have this kind of, uh, and I think it's it's supported by by experiences like the Get Back docu series. We have this this belief that Mal is this, you know, kind of uh, overgrown teddy bear, right? Yeah. He'll do anything and he does. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. 
Yes. You know, but he, as you alluded to before, he had this extensive network. You know, he knew every police chief. <laughs> I was yeah. recently told by John's assistant, uh, David Richter. He knew every police chief in every town in the world. And that's a valuable Rolodex uh, then and now. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> imagine, you know, so Mal was very canny about building relationships and, uh, you know, uh, there were many times he would have given his life for them. Certainly the Philippines, he was prepared to. That's right. No, it's astonishing. Um, the, I was going to ask a bit about the, the McCartney lyrics book because, you know, that came out quite recently. Do you think that's changed people's view of McCartney's lyricist? Do you think that's, uh, you know, that, he's, that there's a lot more uh, understanding of just how extraordinary he was? I mean, uh, yeah, that's, re- a, that's a tough call. So. Um, I, I reviewed it very positively in my salon column. Um, I, the photographs and the imagery and the illustrations alone are just dynamite. And They're wonderful, aren't they? Yeah. Um, I, you know, there's a danger, though, right? He's As he continues to delve into this story, as ideas and events run together. You yeah. Know, um, I, you know, I would have grad for gratis for nothing <laughs> helped correct some of the timeline in there, you know, yes, they do that at some point because actually that's frustrating so, that it's full of those factual errors. It is. And it, because he deserves more and, um, uh, whoever was working on the project with him, I really wish they'd approached it like that because this yeah. does, uh, scholarly value, you know, people are going to make distinctions based upon some of this information. But the one takeaway I have that that I I do find very I feel very positively about is the understanding that, you know, Paul was always a thinker about uh literature. You know, I mean he in another world he would have been an English major like me. Yeah. He uh clearly he loved story, he loved writing, he wrote essays as a kid. We all famously know about his Queen Elizabeth II essay, right? Um, you know, he uh, he just had an, an extraordinary connection with narrative. And yeah. the book really underscores that. You know, there are other moments where he's, you can tell he's searching his memory banks and trying to remember things. And like I said, I would have gladly been there and said, Paul, I think you meant this. This is this was 1966, not 67, pal, you know, <laughs> chum. Yeah, you're wondering if yeah, some of those revelations are so extraordinary. You think, why hadn't he come up with them before? You I had, wanted... uh, in the last months of his life, um, and another important, very important figure, uh, I'd, I'd come to know him anyway, but we, we'd started to speak about doing a kind of lecture tour, and that was Jeff Emmerich. And, oh, um, right, yeah. And I was working with him and his team to maybe take his book and go through and really cleanse it because it has all sorts of factual uh, inaccuracies. Um, and it it really needed and needs, it needs that. If you're listening, Jeff Emmerich's heirs, it still needs that kind it of work. It still needs you. Yeah, 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 it needs to be cleansed because it, now that I have Mal's diaries and all of Mal's manuscripts and his memorabilia, you know, you can really pinpoint that a lot of those dates when he has Mal in the studio, Mal was, you know, he was working for the GPO. <laughs> yeah. There's a lovely bit in your book when you said uh, in the provocative master text of Eleanor Rigby, A Day in the Life, Happiness is a Warm Girl, Revolution, various others, you say you, you the Beatles mine the inherent truth of Socrates' famous dictum that the unexamined life is not worth living. So that was great. So is it particularly with songs like that, you're talking about the detail that brings them? Is it the level of observation in the lyrics that you find so appealing? 
Sure. So, you know, I, and I bet you've you've had this commentary at times where folks question, well, why do you take these artifacts of popular culture and, and analyze them so much? Yeah. And, you know, that's inherent in Socrates' words, um, too. And if you're going to become involved in anything that's worthy of pursuit, I go back to my father, you know, my gosh, 40 something years ago and saying, if you're going to study this, let's get some real books from the library. And, yeah. and that's what I did. And, um, and it took me a long time to understand the power of that kind of analysis. But, you know, if you're going to spend an inordinate amount of time with anything, whether it's the latest episodic television show on HBO or Star Wars or, uh, you know, or my gosh, or the novels of Charles Dickens. Yeah. You know, to do so in a learned fashion only makes it a richer experience. And the Beatles reward us for that, you know, yeah. or you learn about all of those elements. And there are hundreds of them that go into a song like I am the walrus, which we is fresh on my mind from class. You know, it's extraordinary. All of these pieces coming together and, and, you know, now we have such wonderful technology to be able to, be able to demonstrate. That's so true. If you can see right all down to Shakespeare of... at the end, right? Yeah. <laughs> No, I'm the War is a really good example. You can see all that kind of uh, Lewis Carroll kind of, uh, you know, that kind of pastoral poetry of England. You know, that there's so much art and there's so many things. And the more you know about it, the more you appreciate it. It's fantastic. No, I was going to ask about um, the uh, whether there was any aspect of each of the four of them that you felt is is underappreciated is there, is there anything about you know you know i always look at george harrison's guitar playing you know he was 18 when he could he wrote the guitar part to till uh, till there was you you know and you think how beautiful those embroideries are that on those beatles songs they're never really taken for granted are they i think do you know is there anything well, I, about I don't, anything I don't mean to steal your thunder but i think that's exactly uh the most important one yeah um, the embroidery that that uh, George provides for all yeah. of those early songs, for which he's not given credit, right, as a songwriter, and and that's another subject. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know those beautiful lines on uh, um, "Please Please Me," right? Those, yeah. In the margins of the song, they make the song. Yeah. Or um, uh, I was <laughs> I was talking to Colin Hay, our, our good friend, the old Minute Work fellow. Yeah. Uh, and we were talking about what makes she loves you work. And he immediately, he said, Oh, I know where you're going. And he sang the guitar phrase, that little phrase that George would play between the verses. That's that, right. Da, 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 it just that little sting. It's fantastic. It, it makes the song. And then of course, yeah. the chiming, um, and opening with the chorus. Spot. Right. But, but I mean, it makes the song and one of the beautiful uh, aspects, certainly, of the Get Back docuseries is we get to watch George do some of that in real time. Yes, they, I know, yeah. As they craft uh, I've Got a Feeling. And then, of course, um, our good friend Billy Preston shows up. And now George is showing Billy how to find his way into the song and provide those kind of embellishments that make all the difference. So if there's anything that we we don't talk enough about, it's their musicianship. It's you know, they made yeah. things difficult seem extraordinarily easy. It's very uh, moving when Billy Preston arrives and they they dances as he comes across the studio floor and it immediately unites them. And they just remember that he was out there in Hamburg with them and he wants to hear them play a taste of honey because that's what they used to play at sound checks in Hamburg. And it's just it's a great moment for them to seeing them kind of reunited, you know. But what did you think generally about the film in terms of the reevaluation of McCartney? Because I mean, I, I, you know, it's done his 
reputation. I think he's been. I think he's repositioned him actually. I mean, quite rightly. Did you agree? Well, there with certainly that? is. There's enormous value in those um, those longest sections that we weren't entirely aware of, other yeah. than looking to those those Nagra reels all these years. Uh, but Paul, you know, creating get back out of thin air um, uh, on the heels of playing the song that's known as Commonwealth, right? And yeah. watching the organic nature of that develop. Um, there was a, a, you know, George Martin had a, a way that he referred to Paul in his later years. He called him the convener. Yeah. Um, and he was, uh, I got this secondhand from a friend of his in his little village in Colesville. Yeah. And uh, he was trying to explain to a young boy, you know, what how the Beatles worked. He said, well, everybody has to have a Paul. You've got to have the convener, the guy who gets you together, because otherwise it could have been a year before yep. they all went back together. And, and he actually compared it when he was talking to this young boy, George is in his 80s at this point. And he said, it's like, you know, Mr. Whatever down at the chemist. If he didn't get everybody together, we wouldn't do community events. Yes. <laughs> Paul's the convener. And, you know, uh, but what we do, we pick up so much from from Get Back. And, and we already knew this, but it was wonderful to have it have such great vivid testimony is that he's a virtuoso, you know, he, yes. he can play anything. You, you need a, you need a guitar solo on good morning. Good morning. He's your guy. Yeah. Right. And, <laughs> and he do it very quickly in an economy of time. Yeah. Face uh, work. And also he's, that he doesn't just write songs like John Lennon does. He, he writes records. He can hear precisely how that record's going to, how the song should be arranged. He can hear all the, the, the instrumentation. He can hear the tones there's a bit where he's, he's 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 teaching the Maxwell Silver Hammer, and he just goes through. You do this, and you do that, and you do this, you know. And there, pretty much, is the basis of the song done. He's got. Sure, it and then head. there's that wonderful scene where they're whistling it, right? They're all yeah, 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 they're, yeah. They're in tune, and 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 yeah, that's very different from Lennon, who was more of a grafter, right? He would yeah, he would have this piece that what what just like starting over was four different songs grafted together, like yeah, Frankensteinian plant or something. <laughs> that's right. I think also, I mean, I think the other three Beatles, particularly Lennon, were quite distracted at the time. McCartney could concentrate totally on the project. And John Lennon had the world well, of sort of heroin addiction and the, 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 the you know new relationship and uh, the divorce and all sorts of things going on. George Harris, I think, was having an affair, wasn't he, with Charlotte Martin, was it? I think that's right. And so Patty yeah, Boyd just kicked him out on day, I think it's the 6th of January. You see him walking into the film. And if you if you research this, you know that the night before, Patty Boyd has kicked him out of the house. You know, yeah. So it's quite complicated. And also Ringo kind of, I don't know, the film career and it's just, drinking quite a lot. They're all quite distracting, whereas McCartney's got, is totally concentrating on the project, which does... Uh, right. And he's able then to draw them, who are extraordinary talents in their own way, into that story, as you said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The record. Yeah. And, and it's that kind of vision that makes all the difference. Uh, that that great read of, of the way those scenes work together so well. Yes. I, I, I thought, I mean, there were just so many moments that were just... Uh, Absolutely not me out of here. Was there anything? Was there anything particular stand out for you? Anything that you thought? Anything you thought made you think about the Beatles differently? There was a revelation. Uh, well, the scene, you know, again, for most of my life, I've known about the component parts of yeah. this. But seeing that two things, seeing them come together in real time and understanding their proximity to each other is important. Dick James showing up on the day that George. Incredible. Quit. Incredible. Right. And, and, you know, there he is 
singing the praises of the extraordinary partnership of Lennon and McCartney. And there's George and Ringo. And Ringo's like, wow, I, I'd like to be involved in that. <laughs> yes, yes. And George, you can tell that's just one more item on his docket of pain that he's yeah. doing in that moment. And uh, not too long afterwards, it puts him over the edge. You know, not necessarily that element, but all of these things coming together. Yeah. Uh, so that proximity was very, very valuable in that scene um, to help me really see it in real time. The other thing, um, as you know, there was a lot of talk in advance of the docu-series about how we'll we'll reconsider the whole experience. It didn't change a thing for me um, because I understood the, the, the tenor and the, the, you know, of the traumas of that month. What it did was just cement for me what, what I believe we've always known. And that is the let it be or get back slash let it be saga is the greatest comeback story. It's like a great football team, right? Yeah. The great ones come back and win. Yes. And do it in the last moments before time runs out. And that's what happens. The Beatles are on a clock and it's going terribly, right? Yeah. You know, you can tell that the old rock and roll songs that they're playing, you know, that three months earlier when they were doing the White Album sounded crisp and amazing. Now are weak and and lackluster. They're in they're in they're in the doldrums, but uh, you know they break through all these barriers. A guy quits the group, <laughs> right? Know. You know they uh, John is as you said in a kind of stupor. Um, they bring all of those elements back together. They play the rooftop, and then yeah. you know the most extraordinary day. And I understand Peter Jackson's reasoning, but is January 31st when they get in the studio and they make studio versions of all of these songs. I mean, yes. what are they working on that day? Let it be the long and winding road. Yes, don't yeah. let me down. That's a career for most groups. And they are creating this. They're cementing the versions of those songs that we've known and loved for 50 plus years. Yeah. That's magic. It's the greatest comeback story, you know, and after that, they rightly look and feel like they could do anything. No, that's so right. Did you? What did you think about? Maybe understand the Yoko Ono position much more. Actually, Yoko Ono once said, and I wonder if you had any thoughts about whether or not you agreed with this this theory. She said that um, rather than split the Beatles up, I kept them together for longer than they they would have stayed together because John wouldn't go to the studio unless I came with him. And her whole thing was this may be fanciful on her part that she you know convinced him that he ought to attend the end of the White uh, album sessions and then the, uh, the Abbey Road sessions and obviously the ones in Twickenham. You know, do you think there's any truth in that or not? Well, I mean, you know, she has first person testimony, and and yeah. I think we have to give that a lot of weight. Um, uh, so I, I do think there's some some value to that. I don't think she broke them up. Certainly, I've never believed that. Um, you know, they they broke up under the no, they broke up exactly yeah under under so many other issues. I mean, purely generative, right? You know, we're getting older. Paul and John said virtually the same thing. You know, those old army buddies, right? They they both sang the <laughs> the same tune, explaining why at a certain point a rock band was not supposed to last that long. But yeah, um, yeah frankly, um, and I'm sure Apple understands this intuitively as well as anybody. It was the best career move any bands ever made, you know, because they left at the height of their powers. They never, they never sullied their image with some crass reunion. No, no, they never let you down. You know, they no, never and, looked and, older. You know, right, they've never, they, they they've really, never produced substandard material. 
their last song's the end, and they leave with this mystique. They cross that street, and that's it. Yeah, yeah. It's magic, you know? So it's, um, uh, and I'm not saying that they couldn't have come back together and made a better album than Abbey Road. They certainly had the musical skills at that yeah. point. George Harrison is firing on all cylinders. We're about to learn all of the music he's been hiding away all those years with all things. And the, exactly. And there's that great cassette of the conversation that uh, Mark Lewis actually was playing on his, um, on his, on his tour uh, of the conversation they have about the next album after Abbey Road. And it's going to be four songs from each of the three of them and two from Ringo, whatever it is. And uh, they've got it all mapped out. You, 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 you can imagine it would have been sensational because you, you knew some of the songs that they'd written that they turned up on their solo albums. So, yeah, but the point is it ended when it ended. And that was, a, that was fundamentally a good thing, wasn't it? Absolutely. You know, I, I have no tears for that breakup. <laughs> yeah, no, none. Um, you know, I, I understand the the feeling in the moment. And, and Mal Evans writes movingly about crying in Paul's garden in his diary. It's just yeah. uh, this this here for the first time ever on Word on Your Ear. I mean, Mal is broken up. It's his world. Yes. You know, now it, it rebuilds itself and he continues on inside of it for several more years. But yeah. Um, you know, I, I understand the moment and the power of the loss in that instant, but in terms of what they've given to music, the framing of their career, there is nothing better than that. You know? Yes. I suppose the only, the only counterpart is Mozart, you know, in those last days, <laughs> composing the Requiem, right. And, and capping off his own experience. I don't think there's anything close other than that. That's very well put. There's a lovely, another lovely quote in your book. It's from Kurt Vonnegut. But Kurt Vonnegut says, the function of the artist is to make people like life better than they have before. Do you think that was one of the things that the, the, the Beatles achieved? I mean, was that one of the main? Absolutely. I yeah. mean, there's, there's so much you can glean out of their music. It's there for you. And uh, yeah, in some of my lowest moments, I remember driving to bad meetings at work that are just like, why are we doing this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I and I might have a Beatles song. I'll think, you know what? I don't care why we're doing it. As long as that's in my life, it's all okay. Right. Um, you know, that just a very important thought. As long as that exists here and I can return to that font, uh, you know, at different moments, at different times, um, it's going to be okay. And, and Vonnegut really nailed it, which is why I yeah. saved it for the end, right? Because it it's so true, you know, and, and of course he wrote it with a little jealousy, right? As great as Slaughterhouse-Five and Breakfast of Champions are, no one ever it's is- It's not as good as A Hard Day's Night. <laughs> no. Oh, look, Ken, it's been lovely talking to you. So you've got the Mal Evans book you're working on at the moment, and that's coming out. When When do you think you'll finish that? When will that be out? Well, it is written, and we'll be unveiling a cover soon. Um, yeah. It, uh, we, uh, HarperCollins, both in the UK and the US, are handling it. And yeah. uh, we should see it uh, around Father's Day here in the US, so mid-June. Mid-June. Fantastic. Well, as I said before, and I will say again, Long and Winding Roads, the evolving artistry of the Beatles is now revised and updated and uh and fully available for purchase is i mean is it, is it out now it is isn't it so get in there quick it is it, it will be shortly um you're ahead of the curve but that's the there way it is with word in your ear you're always you know you get yes. your orders in <laughs> very nice to talk to you thanks so much ken fantastic oh, thank you this podcast was brought to you by the word Imagine 
the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.